0: With Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our online banking and mobile app are like having a branch right at your fingertips with everything you need to use and manage your accounts 24-7. Check us out at NotreDameFCU.com, insured by NCUA.
1: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Special thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting the show. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our good bishop, continuing our conversation on the Eucharist. This is a conversation, I guess, based off of the talks that you gave on both sides of the diocese, one in Fort Wayne, one in South Bend. So you've given the talks twice, and now you're doing this a a third time going through them. Are you tired about talking about the Eucharist? No,
0: and especially it's (laughs) enjoyable because you kind of ask me extra questions, and I can never talk enough about this mystery. Great. So the first
1: episode was kind of an introduction, talking about the mystery of the Eucharist. We did an episode about the Eucharist as sacrifice, and then we... We've divided this one up into two parts. So there's the Eucharist as presence, and then this will be part two of that conversation. And then we'll eventually get into the Eucharist as communion. I'm very excited about this. If you missed any of the other ones, go back and check out those past episodes and and get caught up. You can go ahead and listen to this one. You're already halfway in here, so you can continue. But then go back and listen to those other ones. They're really good. Uh, So last time you were talking about the Eucharist as presence and kind of an explanation of what we mean by that. What is transubstantiation? Why we believe in transubstantiation? Why this is possible and why it's real. So I'm curious, what else do we have to talk about with regards to presence?
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about an encyclical that was written by Pope St. Paul VI. And it was written in 1965. It's called Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith, which is what we okay. say after the consecration. Let the us proclaim says the mystery of faith. Mystery of faith. Yeah um what year were you born 79 so this was written 14 years before you were born so this is like history for he, you. he
1: was getting ready for me
0: yes yeah you were born in what year 79 the, so actually john paul was just elected the year before you were born right so you never like so paul VI for you is like a historical figure yeah yeah whereas he was the pope up until i was in college okay so I remember him, and listeners probably know he was the pope after John the Twenty Third. Saint John the Twenty Third died after the first session of the Second Vatican Council. So Paul the was pope for the the next three sessions of the Second Vatican Council, and then he was uh, pope all the way up to nineteen seventy eight. So it was such a tumultuous time, the late, especially the late fifties, especially after the council, yeah, the late sixties and into the seventies. So that's when you know like i was in the latter years of grade school high school in the early 70s graduated from high school in 1975 and
1: it was mm-hmm. it was
0: uh, just so much you know you had the sexual revolution mm-hmm. you had all this going on in society there was the peace movement the war in vietnam watergate i mean yeah. it was quite a time but there were good things too the man land, the first man landing on the moon sure. and, i mean there were but it was it was quite a time and in the church there was a lot of I I guess you could say theological controversies, especially after the council and in the interpretation of the council. So Paul VI had to face a challenge from certain Catholic theologians regarding the doctrine of transubstantiation. There were some theologians who were proposing alternate theories to explain the Eucharistic change, and they wanted to do away with the term transubstantiation. So, and this was actually, these theologians were already writing about this before the council ended. So they had theories like transsignification and transfinalization. So they're using different philosophical ways of looking at it. So, you know, transsignification, there's a change in meaning, or transfinalization, there's a change in purpose. And, and they're right, there is a change in meaning. There is a change in purpose, but you can't do away with the fact that there's a change of being, there's a change of substance, mm. because there's only a change in meaning and a change in purpose because there's a change in the reality of the thing. Right. So Paul VI wrote this wonderful encyclical to respond to these theologians, basically, called Mysterium Fide, Mystery of Faith. and Pope St. Paul VI explained that the Eucharistic consecration certainly brings about a change of meaning and finality, but, he said, these changes come about because of an ontological change by which the old realities, the substances of bread and wine, have been converted into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. So. By the way, when I gave, I used that word ontological at a, during one of the talks on Eucharistic Formation Days. And one of the comments afterwards was, Bishop, you used some words that we didn't know what it yeah. meant. And I have to apologize for that. But sometimes I think, that's okay. You can always look it up. I remember when I would be in class, <laughs> yeah. in classes, I would often hear words I never heard before. So I'd write them down and go right. home and look it up in the dictionary. That's one of the ways to learn, really. But no, I should explain. <laughs> ontological means the study of being in philosophy it's it's the it's called metaphysics you know it's a very important course it was probably my favorite i think it was my favorite philosophy course was metaphysics but now there's even in certain philosophical schools there's just they don't even teach metaphysics anymore because they don't believe in such a and that there is such a thing mm. so yeah. that's uh, a problem but so basically what Paul VI was, was saying is that any theological explanation of the mystery of the Eucharist must affirm that the bread and wine objectively cease to exist after the consecration.
1: Mm.
0: Bread and wine cease to exist. And because they've been changed into the reality Of Christ's body and blood, the substance of His body and blood, and He said this mysterious change is very appropriately called by the Church transubstantiation. So, transfinalization, transsignification, can talk about those things, but not without talking about the ontological change, without talking about the transubstantiation that takes place. So when I was in the seminary studying theology in Rome, there was a course on the Holy Eucharist, of course, and and also I had a course on transubstantiation in recent theological dialogue, something like that. So I took it. It was an elective, and I thought, oh, this will be interesting because I really love the Eucharist course that I had. And Professor... It was good i mean he was an american i had very few american professors while i was studying at the gregorian university but he was open to these alternative theories and and so were a number of students in the class and some of them were kind of saying that they didn't agree with paul the that uh-huh. they thought we should you know in in contemporary society we shouldn't use that word transubstantiation anymore they were more into, you know, trans-signification, and even other theories. And I was kind of, un, I was uncomfortable with that. So it was a seminar course, so it wasn't like, where it was just lectures. There was a lot of discussion and reading and stuff. So we had to do a major paper at the end of the seminar, and mine was on defending the use of the word transubstantiation. Okay. So I was kind of one of the, this was back in like, I, I think it was... Can't remember if it was my third year of theology. I want to say, no, it might have been my fourth year of theology. I can't remember. But anyhow, so I wrote my paper and actually did fine. The professor, you know, thought I was able to defend basically the, the church's teaching and the encyclical of Paul VI.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And I did my best. And but it, even then, even then, this was still quite debatable. You know, in the sense, this was still something that—now, this was early on in John Paul II's pontificate, and he wrote beautiful things about the Eucharist. So, you know, he wrote—actually, his first—in 1979, you know, he wrote Holy Thursday letters to priests every year of his pontificate. And the first one, I think, was the longest in 1979. It was called Dominicie Cene, pretty long, beautiful doctrine, and spiritual reflections on the Eucharist. And of course, at the end of his pontificate, his last encyclical was Ecclesia De Eucharistia on the Eucharist. So I would say that the theology was starting to become much stronger and really along the lines that Paul VI had taught in his encyclical Mysterium Fidei. Hmm. Now there are some who do not appreciate the uniqueness of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So this is another challenge. In other words, they would say, well, Christ is present in many ways in the church. Mm. Now, it's true. Christ is present in many other ways of the church. But it's not all in the same way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the church believes, the church teaches that Christ is present in many ways. He's present in his word in the scriptures. He's present in the church. He's, he's present in prayer. He's present in the poor. He's present in the sick. He's present in the person of the priest. He's present in all the sacraments. So that's okay to say, but the problem is when people don't appreciate what I said, the uniqueness of the Eucharistic presence. In other words, they would say, well, all these are kind of equal. Mm -hmm. You know, like, well, no, they're not all the same. And the Second Vatican Council really, and also kind of following upon what Council of Trent said and what Pope Paul VI said and what the present catechism says, that the mode of Christ's presence in the Eucharist is unique. Okay, so I'll quote, well, the Second Vatican Council says that that it raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. And then, quoting the Council of Trent, Catechism says, In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained. So those words, which I talked about in our last episode, Christ being truly, really, and substantially present in the Eucharist, that's right from the Council of Trent, and it's right there in our present catechism of the Catholic Church. And when was the Council of Trent? 16th century,
1: Yeah,
0: right after the Protestant Reformation. Okay. And then the catechism quotes Paul VI on this, the encyclical mysterium. Fide. and it's, this is all in one paragraph of the Catechism, by the uh-huh. way. And it says, this is Paul VI, this presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude the other types of presence, as if they could not be real too. So in other words, yeah, Christ is really present in his word. You know, he's, he's really present in the poor, etc. Mm-hmm. But, Paul VI wrote, because it is presence in the fullest sense, that is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself wholly and entirely present. So I, I love that paragraph of the Catechism because, as I said, it, it kind of just puts these three quotes together, the like, Vatican Council, the Council of Trent, and Paul VI. The all together in one paragraph talking about the real presence. Yeah. It's the Catechism number 1374. Okay. So here we are in 2023, and we are facing a crisis of belief in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist among many Catholics. There was a Pew Research study a few years ago which revealed this, and it was kind of shocking to the bishops you know, to us bishops, that, that there were so many Catholics who don't believe in the real presence. Now, there have been some criticisms of that study and the language that was used that maybe people didn't quite understand the question. Mm-hmm. I think it probably was more pessimistic than we should be, at least in our diocese. I know we've done some, there was a questionnaire in one parish and the Percent of those who believe in the real presence was much much higher mm-hmm. than the national average, but it was still like twenty percent who didn't. Yeah, so that's still problematic. That are attending mass. Yeah, are attending yeah. mass. Yeah. Back in two thousand seven, and I didn't remember this when the the Pew research study came out, but Benedict the sixteenth had already kind of noticed this. Pope Benedict had talked about the disbelief of many Catholics in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. This was in a homily that he gave on the Feast of Corpus Christi, the year 2007. So I wanna quote what Pope Benedict said. Precisely because we are dealing with a mysterious reality which surpasses our comprehension, we should not be amazed if even today many find it difficult to accept the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It could not have been otherwise. Today, just as back then, referring to the time of Jesus, the Eucharist remains a sign of contradiction because a God who becomes flesh and sacrifices himself for the life of the world puts into crisis the wisdom of men. Puts into crisis? Yeah. In other words, the Eucharist is a sign of contradiction, you said, okay? So human wisdom okay just human wisdom alone you know would would not <clears throat> would would find this so so difficult that's why we need the grace of faith but but he says the really the, the modern mind also has difficulty even as it did back in the time of Jesus i mean look at all those who left him after he ta- gave the teaching on the eucharist they found his difficult to, his teaching too hard to accept. Right. So, but even the fact that we believe in a God who became flesh, a God who becomes flesh and sacrifices himself for the life of the world. I mean, that's not according to the wisdom of men. Like, Mm -hmm. that's God's wisdom. That's why St. Paul writes about this, you know, the foolishness that we can be considered fools because of what we believe, fools for Christ, but it's not just human wisdom here, you know, it's God's wisdom, and God in his wisdom became man, took on our flesh, sacrificed himself for the life of the world, so this same God becomes present among us, gives us his body and blood under the forms of bread and wine. Mm -hmm. This is so amazing, really. It's very amazing, and it, it does surpass our understanding. You know, It surpasses our, our comprehension, and it's a, such a mysterious reality. And that's where the, the gift of faith comes in. Mm-hmm. The Eucharist, as the Church said at the Sacerdote Council, was the source and summit of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. So the crisis of Eucharistic faith you know, it's a real crisis in the church because if the Eucharist is the source and summit of our life, and yet many Catholics just think it's a symbol, mm-hmm. that's, that's troubling. And that's why we have the three-year Eucharistic revival in the United States, to deepen faith in the Holy Eucharist. And I'm very excited about the Eucharistic revival. It's one of my priorities, having more preaching and catechesis, prayer, celebration, you know, the National Eucharistic Congress will be in Indianapolis in July of 2024. We have the document that I worked on in the Committee on Doctrine of the USCCB, the Mystery of the Eucharist and the Life of the Church. And in that document, we bishops write about and we encourage Eucharistic devotion and Eucharistic adoration. When you think about it, adoration manifests our faith in the real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. Why would we go to an adoration chapel where the Holy Eucharist is in the monstrance and pray there in front of our Lord if we didn't believe that it was our Lord, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that he was really present? In the document, the USCCB document, we bishops wrote the following, the church's firm belief in the real presence of Christ is reflected in the worship that we offer to the Blessed Sacrament in various ways, including Eucharistic exposition, adoration, and benediction, Eucharistic processions, and 40 hours devotions. In addition, the practices of reverently genuflecting before the Blessed Sacrament reserved in the tabernacle, bowing one's head prior to the reception of Holy Communion, and refraining from food and drink except for only water and medicine for at least one hour before receiving communion. These are all clear manifestations of the church's Eucharistic faith.
1: Hmm. I like the word manifestation, not sign or symbol. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. They manifest what's our faith, what's in our hearts. And I think there's a beautiful flowering of Eucharistic devotion. And I think it began especially under John Paul II, but even now, I mean, so many of our young people, when we're planning some kind of youth event or a young adult event, they'll say, Bishop, can we have adoration, Yeah. Eucharistic adoration? I mean, when I was in high school, I don't remember us ever asking that. You know, mm-hmm. this is just beautiful to see today. So I have some optimism of a, like a new springtime for, in Eucharistic faith. And in the second year of the revival, which begins in June, I've asked all of the parishes of the diocese to have 40 hours devotion. And I'm really happy about that. It was something that I grew up with. In the diocese of Harrisburg, even while I was bishop, every parish every year had 40 hours. Hmm. And when I came to Fort Wayne South Bend and found out they didn't have 40 hours for many years in parishes, I was surprised. I thought, Ah, I want to bring that back. Uh-huh. Well, it's it's taken me a long time, but this was the first time to bring it back. But the reason it was so strong in in Harrisburg, really in the state of Pennsylvania, is because Saint John Newman, back in the 19th century, he brought this devotion to the United States, mm. and he was the Bishop of Philadelphia. And at that time, okay. Philadelphia archdiocese Philadelphia archdiocese included the whole state, so Harrisburg was part of. Philadelphia Archdiocese. So, I don't know if it was the whole state. It was the, might've just been the eastern half of the state. But anyhow, Uh this was something that really was so strong in, in that area of our country that it really never died out like it did in most of the rest of the United States. So, having 40 hours come back is a really great thing. So, I've even asked, every vicariate had to send me the dates of, we have six vicariates in the diocese. Of the parishes and their vicariates, that and the dates of their 40 hours. One reason I asked them all that they should not have any, let's say a, a, a vicariate has, let's say, a dozen parishes. I didn't want any of them to be conflicting so that people could go to different hmm. parishes at not too great a distance yeah. to 40 hours. So, What's your vicariate? I always forget which vicariate. There, there, there's letters. There's vicariate A, B, C, D. I never forget what, but Decatur's in a vi, vicariate. Yeah, so there's a,
1: Hessen Castle and Bluffton and Geneva. Yeah, I don't know what the, there's a letter assigned to it.
0: Yeah, and there, there's, there's probably about, about a dozen, maybe even more parishes in your vicariate. Okay. So you can check it out. We're going to have this published in today's Catholic, this mm-hmm. schedule. So what it basically happens is, after Mass, on Sunday, after the last Mass, they will expose the Blessed Sacrament and have the Holy Eucharist exposed on the altar until Tuesday evening. So it's not exactly 40 hours, but it's, it doesn't have to be exactly 40 hours. It's actually more than 40 hours, especially if you have adoration continuing through the night, which is the ideal. Uh-huh. But you have to make sure you have people there present to adore the Eucharist during all of those hours. Mm-hmm. And I think the majority of our parishes will be able to do that. I mean, there might might be a couple that will have a hard time getting people to sign up for two o'clock in the morning or whatever. Right. But I think most should be able to do it. And then each evening of 40 hours, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, it's like a parish mission. So you'd have a preacher, there'd be community would come together for prayer Mm -hmm. in front of the Blessed Sacrament, usually Vespers, evening prayer, and kind of a longer extended homily on the Eucharist. So it's kind of a mini parish mission, yeah, and then they have the closing on Tuesday evening where they give benediction with the blessed sacrament, and then all the priests of the vicariate are invited to come for the closing. Oh, wow. So I'm really hopeful this will, this will be popular and a lot of people will come. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Now, as far as Eucharistic adoration, in our document, the USCCB document, we bishops strongly encourage adoration of the Holy Eucharist. But, you know, there's some critics of that, and it's really interesting, because I remember the critics back in the 70s. I didn't think there were, you know, still critics of of, of adoration around, or that there would be that many, but there's still some theologians and some liturgists who see adoration as in opposition to communion. Mm. And that's false. It's an erroneous claim. Of course, receiving Jesus in Holy Communion is primary. right? But our communion with Christ is sustained by adoration. Mm. In fact, I quoted in the last episode, St. Augustine, we are first of all to adore the Lord before we receive him. That's why we make the profound bow before receiving Holy Communion. Mm. We adore the Lord during the Eucharistic prayer. And during Holy Communion, because we're conscious of the mystery that's present, and we know that the Mass is more than a simple meal of fellowship. Our adoration of Christ in the Eucharist begins with adoration at Mass, and it leads to adoration outside of Mass. Okay, so the Eucharistic presence of Jesus is not limited to the Mass. Mm Mm-hmm. He is still present in the tabernacle and in the monstrance. So correct piety, correct and healthy piety, connects adoration outside of Mass with the Mass and with Holy Communion. Because there is a fundamental link Mm -hmm. of Eucharistic worship outside of Mass to the Eucharistic liturgy. In his encyclical on the Eucharist, Pope St. John Paul II wrote that by praying before the Eucharist outside Mass, we are enabled to make contact with the very wellspring of grace. Hmm. So one's desire to receive Holy Communion should grow and intensify by worship of the Eucharist outside Mass. So we need to get away from this false dichotomy like, like adoration or communion. You right. know, no, it's both. Right. Now this is something that we address in our USCCD document. So I want to quote a paragraph. Our gratitude to God is also expressed in our worship of the Blessed Sacrament outside of Mass. These forms of worship Are all intrinsically related to the Eucharistic celebration. In the Eucharist, the Son of God comes to meet us and desires to become one with us. Eucharistic adoration is simply the natural consequence of the Eucharistic celebration. Receiving the Eucharist means adoring Him whom we received. Only in this way do we become one with Him and are given, as it were, a foretaste of the beauty of the heavenly liturgy. We rejoice, okay, the bishops are saying this, we rejoice in the growing numbers of the faithful who pray in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament, a testament of faith in the real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. We encourage this devotion, which helps all of us to be formed by the self-giving love we behold in the Lord's gift of himself in the Eucharist. I remember as a child, I might have mentioned it on the show before, how we always made visits to the Blessed Sacrament when I was a kid and we'd go downtown, walk, we lived kind of downtown, but walked several blocks to the church, but we would never go downtown shopping or whatever without stopping in the church to pray before the Blessed Sacrament to what we'd call a visit to the Uh Blessed Sacrament. I mean, it was just unthinkable. You just wouldn't walk by church without stopping in to pray. Yeah, Even if it's like just coming to say hello to Jesus, you know, that impressed. I mean, as a young, as a young boy, I mean, that, I mean, it was something just part of life, Mm -hmm. you know, like we believed, so we weren't going to neglect going in and, and praying before our Lord. And I think we need to get back. I like to see our churches open during the day so that people can make visits to the Blessed Sacrament. You know, I I love to see people going into church just to stop by to visit. It doesn't have, the Eucharist doesn't have to be exposed in the monstrance in order to make a visit, you know?
1: Yeah, can you talk about the difference between the Eucharist in the tabernacle locked behind, you know, a metal door, gold or whatever, versus being exposed. Last time you were talking about our eyes deceive us, right? Our taste, our our sense of taste deceives us. It's all about our ears. So if we're hearing and we're knowing and believing that this is Jesus, how, how does seeing it, is there a difference in reverence and posture and the power of the prayer
0: or? That's an interesting question. It's the same Jesus, whether we can see, the sacred host through the little window, the glass of the monstrance, what we're seeing is 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 what appears to be bread, mm-hmm. but we, in faith, know that it's Jesus. But we don't even have that when the host is in the tabernacle, right, right. you know. So you can't even see the the host, but but it's it's the same Jesus. I think the efficace, efficacy of the prayer is not dependent on whether the Eucharist is exposed or not mm-hmm. it's what's in our heart the depth of adoration
1: and i don't want to spoil our next episode on communion but is there a difference in the e- efficacy of prayer between adoration or being in the presence of the tabernacle versus receiving and it actually coming into us and and digesting i presence? i believe
0: uh, to be honest i don't think we're ever closer to our lord than in that period right after receiving him within us yeah I think that's the most yeah I I would call it the most intense because we actually have the Lord himself we've just consumed him and until the digestive process has taken place which is like 20 minutes I mean we have the real presence of our Lord yeah in our body. That's really amazing, I think. I think that's why when, you know, coming back from, I kind of miss this because as a celebrant of Mass, I don't get, you don't get to really pray. You're, you go down to distribute Holy Communion. But I, I miss mm. that time where, like immediately after receiving Holy Communion, that I could go back to the pew and just be in, in this uh, silent prayer, you know, cognizant of the fact that I've just received the body and blood of the Lord. Yeah, I would like to try to help people to kind of recognize how important that moment is or those minutes are after receiving Holy Communion, when one goes back to the pew. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was a kid, we had to cover our, we covered our faces. I don't know if that was common, but Mm. in my parish it was, maybe it was all over, but you know how you go back and you kind of have your hands folded? Yeah. You're, you're often kneeling down. Uh, some will sit down, but oh, you can be kneeling down, and you're praying after receiving Holy Communion. And usually, I think a lot of people have their eyes closed. Maybe some would be singing the Communion hymn. But what we did at that point, and I have the, it's interesting to have this childhood memory, is we had both of our hands over our faces, covering our faces when we went back. When we knelt down, we would cover our faces. I don't know, you know, I didn't know why. I guess it was so that we aren't distracted. I yeah. Think. You know, so you're not looking around. You're not, you're just focused on what just happened and that you've just received Jesus. Yeah. To me, that's a very beautiful memory because I remember how close I felt to Jesus as a boy. Anyhow, had you ever heard of that or seen No, it?
1: no, I don't. I mean, I don't know that I've paid attention too closely to what other people are doing, but.
0: Yeah, I don't see that today. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't see people. I see people with their eyes closed, yeah. yeah, praying, obviously, and with their hands folded. yeah. But I don't see, you know, I'm not saying people should be doing, you know, covering the face, but uh-huh. that was what we did back then. I, I just yeah. have a fond memory of that. And the fond memory was of the closeness I felt with Jesus. I would think now all I'd have to do is close my eyes really, but.
1: You know, do you have a suggestion on if we should be singing the hymn or praying silently? That's a good question.
0: That's kind of one of those questions that liturgists disagree on. Okay. I definitely think there needs to be a period of silence after Holy Communion. You know, I think that should be let's say you're having a communion hymn, then there should be a period of silence after the communion hymn before yeah. The priest says the prayer after communion, you Mm -hmm. know, where everybody stands up. There needs to be a period of silence. I don't think you have to fill in that whole time with music. That's my opinion. Sometimes there could be maybe a a song, for example, that has a refrain, like one of the songs, like Taste and See the Goodness of the Lord, that Mm -hmm. people just sing the refrain so they don't have to be carrying hymnals. Mm. You know, I think that's a good thing but I think just filling up with a lot of music throughout the communion, right? Personally, I find that more difficult to really enter into the deeper prayer that I want to enter into at that time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I feel like we're starting to dip our toes into the, uh, the communion episode. Almost. I yeah. still
0: have a few more things I'd like to okay. say if we have time, sure. I yep. probably get going long. I want to mention just because we're talking about devotion to the Eucharist, yeah. the saints, When we read the lives of the saints, Mm -hmm. it's very evident that they grew in holiness because of their devotion to the Eucharist and the nourishment and strength that they receive from Holy Communion. This is, you know, would they have arrived at their lives of heroic virtue without it? I don't think so. In the USCCB document, we highlight, we mention a few saints, and I'll never forget, it was at an administrative committee meeting. We had a draft of the document. Cardinal Dolan of New York said, Kevin addressed me. Uh-huh. He said, <laughs> we need to put some saints in there. I said, great idea. But, you know, the bishops were saying that we shouldn't let this document get too long. But I would love to put some saints in. Uh-huh. So when I w- after that meeting, I went back and I made a list. And I had like, I don't know, 40 or 50 saints I thought I could. I said, well, nah, I can't use all these. So we had to kind of choose just a few. <laughs> But we did mention our first American-born saint, Elizabeth Ann Seton, mm-hmm. and she was drawn to the Catholic Church because of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. She saw the Eucharistic faith of the pe- people in Livorno, Italy, when she was over there with her husband. Her hu- They went there, her husband was sick, and I guess because of the climate and that, that would be better for him, and there was an Italian family who they got to know, and were very devoted to the Eucharist. And, and that really touched Mother Seton. You know, she was an Episcopalian. And when she came back and her husband died, she continued for a little while going to the Episcopal Church. And she would, in New York, I forget the name of the Episcopalian Church, but it was right down near Ground Zero. And she would look out the window at the Catholic Church nearby, which was St. Peter's. That still stands, uh-huh. but not far from Ground Zero. And she found herself during this anglican or episcopalian liturgy praying to jesus in the tabernacle of the catholic church as she was looking out the window so it didn't take her long to convert yeah and i mean she had five children at that point you know and this led to her being ostracized by some family members and friends and she ended up moving with her family to baltimore but but she became Catholic, and it was really because of the Eucharist. So we use her as an example. Mm-hmm. She's our first U.S.-born saint. We also mention in our document Two Young People. I've talked about Blessed Carlo Acutis mm-hmm. a lot on this show, so I'm not going to go into his life. But, but his example of strong faith in the real presence, his great devotion to the Eucharist, we know his efforts to spread stories the stories of Eucharistic miracles mm-hmm. through the Internet, we also mention St. Jose Sanchez del Rio. Mm-hmm. Someone may not think of him right away when you think about saints of the Eucharist, this 14-year-old Mexican martyr who was strengthened when he received the viaticum. He was in his, this jail cell. He was strengthened to not renounce his faith. So after he received Holy Communion, the viaticum, his last communion, he had the strength he needed to face torture. Mm -hmm. and death for the sake of Christ, he would not deny. They wanted him to say, death to Christ, and he would answer, long live Christ the King. Viva Christore." We also mention, of course, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta and her beautiful devotion to the Eucharist that was lived out in her loving care for the poorest of the poor. Because we have to always remember this, true and authentic Eucharistic devotion is a lived devotion it's to live the eucharist so when we leave mass or we leave an adoration chapel or we've just made to a visit to the blessed sacrament we're to go out to live a eucharistic life if our prayer doesn't bear fruit in love then we have to ask ourselves well is my prayer really authentic you know the fruit of prayer is love mm-hmm. that's what mother teresa said and Pope Benedict XVI also was very strong on this in his abstract exhortation. No, no, it was his encyclical, God is Love, Deus Caritas est. Benedict XVI wrote Worship itself, Eucharistic communion, includes the reality both of being loved and of loving others in turn. A Eucharist which does not pass over into the concrete practice of love. Is intrinsically fragmented, Benedict said. Basically, we're to live lives of Eucharistic consistency. We're to share the love that we celebrate and receive in the Eucharist with all. Because remember, at the end of Mass, we're sent to glorify the Lord by our lives, by our lives, to bear witness to his love and compassion towards our neighbors. And when we do, we're worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Mm-hmm. Remember Jesus said that the Samaritan woman at the well that when they're talking about where to worship God and Jesus was emphasizing we to worship the Lord you know because she was saying we worship him on Mount Gerizim and you worship him in Jerusalem and what Jesus says most important is that we worship him in spirit and in truth. So the true worship is as Benedict the 16th said includes the practice of love, you know, that we live what we receive. Right. So, yeah. So good talking to you again about this theme. uh, Yes. Eucharistic revival.
1: Yes. Again, you can go back and check out the past episodes to get caught up. If you missed any of those and we'll continue the conversation. Do you think it's going to be one episode or multiple episodes on communion?
0: I don't know, Kyle. I do get (laughs) carried away. (laughs) Might be two. Okay. Are you up for two more? Oh yeah. yeah! This is kind of like we could talk about the Eucharist all year. Yeah, we're throughout the three-year. Yeah,
1: where do you go after sacrifice,
0: presence, and communion? Oh, I could go deeper into each one. Okay, I mean, I would probably. I mean, those are the three I would call major aspects. Of I think the Eucharist. that what
1: you just touched on of the living it out, like what does that compel us to do, and how
0: does that, and that's going to be part mission. of the next part yeah. too, because. Okay. Of, when, when we, on Eucharist's communion, because the Eucharist builds us into the church, mm. into communion with one another. Yeah. So it gets into the whole commandment of love one another. So anyhow, you know, Jesus said, my flesh is, we he spoke of himself as the bread of life, he spoke of the bread of life for the life of the world. Mm-hmm. So we're to go out into the world to bring the life and love of christ so that means serving the poor and the needy etc so we'll talk about that in the next two episodes probably
1: all right sounds good (laughs) Could we get your episcopal
0: blessing before we go sure the lord be with you and with your spirit blessed be the name of the lord now and forever our help is in the name of the lord who made heaven and earth may almighty god bless you the father and the son and the holy spirit amen thank you bishop you're welcome kyle Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. It's engineered by Josh Skipper at the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend, produced by Miriam Schmitz, and edited by Tony Marks for Spoke Street Media. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.